0: This month, we're looking at various characters, people in the Christmas narrative, and we're focusing on a number of them, how they responded to the new realities that God placed into their lives. And if you've been here in recent weeks, you've seen that we've looked at the story of Zechariah, of Herod, a king of sorts, of Mary last week, next week looking at the man named Simeon, and today, Joseph. If you have your Bibles, turn there to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, first chapter in the first book of the New Testament. I think it's page 783 in a Bible that you might get here. Our hosts have them. And if you haven't brought a Bible, uh, this is our gift to you. Just raise your hand and we'll put it in your hand. And uh, if you just forgot yours at home, uh, consider this alone. Use it today and you can return that afterward. We want you to be in the Scriptures because we believe God speaks through them. Matthew chapter 1. Beginning in verse 18 to 25 is where our focus will be today. Sometimes, no matter what what you do, your reputation takes a hit and you have to live with it. The year was about 2012. I attended a seminar by Dr. Michael Lindsay. Lindsay had just taken a position as the president of Gordon College, a Christian college in the Boston area, and he was already a well regarded sociologist. He had been at Rice University before, best known, perhaps, for his book that he wrote in about 2007 called Evangelicals in the Halls of Power. And it was about evangelicals, followers of Jesus, in business and government and entertainment in the academy, who were actively living out their faith in very admirable ways, sometimes very influential ways. And Lindsay, as part of his research, had done hundreds of interviews for that book. During the question and answer time of that seminar, I asked Dr. Lindsay, of all the famous people that you've interviewed, which person is most misunderstood or has a character far different than what the public generally believes? And without missing a beat, Michael Lindsay said, Ken Starr. How many of you have heard the name Ken Starr? He went on to explain. Ken Starr was an up-and-coming lawyer in the 1980s. He had everything you could want in front of him as a young professional. He was highly regarded by almost all who knew him. He served as an attorney in the Reagan administration and then later as an appeals court judge in Washington, D.C., and then as solicitor general under the first George Bush. Solicitor general is kind of the lead prosecutor on behalf of the government before the court. And in 1990, he was thought of by many as the leading candidate to be appointed to the Supreme Court. But for several reasons, including his bipartisan reputation and the fear that he might not be a lockstep conservative, he was passed over. And later, David Souter was appointed, which has much irony. Later, there was a uh, three-judge panel in the 1990s that appointed Ken Starr, to head what was called the Whitewater Investigation. He was the independent counsel. And it was a part-time role for Ken Starr as he continued his legal practice. And then it expanded exponentially into a far larger investigation into possible crimes and abuses, which later connected President Clinton and a young intern named Monica Lewinsky. And the Starr Report, as it was called, became part of the grand story of, you guessed it, impeachment. He, Ken Starr, and President Clinton were co-named Person of the Year by Time Magazine in 1998. And for years thereafter, Ken Starr was was increasingly vilified. He was mocked. His reputation in the eyes of many people was shattered. His credentials, his integrity were questioned. And the reason, well, because he decided to serve his country in an independent role supposedly for the sake of justice and for the nation. Michael Lindsay says that Ken Starr is one of the most honorable and high-character people you would ever know. But with the passage of time, that name Ken Starr would never be what it once was. I'm pretty sure that Ken Starr could relate to a man in the Bible named Joseph who wondered, What just happened? Verse 18, Joseph's dilemma and solution, Matthew 1. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly." We can be tempted to think that Joseph is kind of a distant third in the trio of the Christmas story. You have Jesus, of course. You have his mother Mary, and then, oh yeah, there's Joseph. But God's selection of Joseph wasn't an accident. Just as God had selected Mary to be the biological mother of the baby Jesus, so Joseph was selected to become the legal father of Jesus. A little background on their situation last week we noted that Mary was in all likelihood a very young teenager, and Joseph, her fiancé, not much older. In fact, one of our study Bibles says it like this. Jewish couples often wed when the young man was about 18, and the young woman was in her early teens. Before marriage, they would not live together and were expected to refrain from sexual relations until after their wedding ceremony. Now, this period of engagement back then was more public, more binding than what we know. In in ancient times in Israel, as some of you know, it was called betrothal. And and this betrothal period was a multi-phase process. It included negotiation and pronouncement and preparation and celebration and consummation. And all this could take up to about a year. That's good because engagements for longer than a year, I don't understand. The the pledge to be married, though, was legally binding. And only a written note of divorce could break it. And one of the reasons for that would be uh, adultery, which was considered uh, possible even during betrothal. Betrothal was a time of testing, a time of probation, we might say. The bride and the groom had very little social contact with each other. Now, Jewish weddings had three separate, distinct steps. First, there was engagement. Then there was the long period of betrothal, uh, a legally binding relationship, lasting, as I said, almost a year. And then the third step, marriage itself. And it was during that second step, the betrothal period, that Mary was found to be pregnant. Verse 18, But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Before they came together, affirms that that Mary's pregnancy was discovered while she was still betrothed, and that Joseph and Mary had been chased. Well, we come to that in a moment. It begs the question, though, how was this discovered that Mary was pregnant? There are a number of ideas, each one of, the, of them with complications. Uh, one f- possibility, for instance, was that it became obvious that a baby bump appeared. Um, it's also possible that, that Mary had talked to some of her uh, friends or relatives, that she was no longer having the cycle that a woman would, and that became known. It may have been that, that Elizabeth sent word back, uh, after all, they were relatives, and said, you'll never know what I found out about Mary. There are other possibilities. The, the answer is we simply don't know, and Matthew doesn't think it's important to reveal how. Here's what we can say with a high degree of confidence. Joseph doesn't initially believe Mary's story that she's pregnant without the involvement of another man. We suspect that because of his plans, because of his response here. Joseph knew that he wasn't the father. He had not had sex with Mary. And and he may not have heard Mary's supernatural alibi. And if he did, he may not have believed it. Whatever the source, though, of Mary's pregnancy, Joseph had to respond. Joseph had a social, a legal, a family obligation to pursue justice, if for no other reason than the family's honor and the family name. Joseph couldn't just wave it off and act like it was nothing. Oh, shucks, too bad. Uh, Let's see what we do. This was a scandal. This was an embarrassment of gigantic proportions. And then there was the personal disappointment, the devastation that Joseph must have felt, which we shouldn't underestimate. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Here's a young man who had seemingly done everything right. He followed the expected path, and all of a sudden, he feels betrayed at the deepest level. They were already viewed as a couple who had not yet consummated their marriage, and then this fiancé discovers that his beautiful, soon-to-be bride had either been violated or, more likely, he thought, had been willfully messing around prior to their wedding. How would you feel if you were Joseph? Who would you talk to? What would you do? Well, we know one thing's for certain. Mary's pregnant, and it demands an explanation, and Matthew provides it. I said, how exactly this young teenager is carrying a baby in her womb. Now, now, Matthew's language, and we don't get it quite as much in English, is very precise and very careful to avoid the idea that somehow that the Spirit of God was sexually involved with Mary like a human male. No, the, the idea here is that the Spirit of God was the source or the cause of Jesus' origin, not the agent of the conception itself. We're not talking about God's spirit sexually impregnating a young virgin, even if that idea was part of some people's minds in history. For instance, the Romans believed that Zeus impregnated Semele and she conceived Dionysius. At Buddha's conception, his mother supposedly saw a great white elephant enter her belly. Hinduism has claimed that the divine Vishnu get this, after reincarnations as a fish, tortoise, boar, and lion, descended into the womb of Devaki and was born as her son Krishna. One legend even says that Alexander the Great was virgin-born through the power of Zeus, Zeus was apparently active back then, through a snake that impregnated his mother, Olympias. Well, those may be legends that we shake our heads at, but modern science, medical physiology, also has no explanation for the virgin birth. John MacArthur writes, he was was neither merely the son of a previously barren woman, nor a freak of nature. To ignore the virgin birth is to ignore Christ's deity. And to ignore his deity is tantamount to denying it. Real incarnation demands a real virgin birth. Apart from Jesus being both human and divine, there is no gospel. Oh, so this matters. But Joseph didn't know any of this regarding this engaged young lady. Like any young man who's about to get married, who hears of this new reality, Joseph is devastated because in his mind, she's betrayed him. He he couldn't in good conscience marry her if she's been unfaithful to him. And as a Jewish young man, he undoubtedly knew that sexual unfaithfulness during betrothal was considered adultery. And under the Mosaic law, Deuteronomy chapter 22, it carried the penalty of death by stoning. And the Bible says here that Joseph was faithful to the law. He was a righteous man, some of your translations say. Normally talking about how someone responded to the law, but at times also referring to the character of someone. And I believe refers to Joseph's character Here. You see, Joseph's commitment to the law was in tension with his compassion for Mary. And verse 19, look there, tells us that he was trying to navigate how he would show both justice and mercy. He had a double problem. He was loyal to the law, but he was also loyal to his future bride. He was morally righteous and therefore he knew that he couldn't just go through with this marriage because of Mary's pregnancy. He wasn't the father, and he thought Mary had been with another man. But he was also a man of righteous love, of kindness, and he couldn't bear the thought of shaming Mary publicly in front of everyone else, which he could have and often was done in that day. Make it personal. What would you do... If you discovered that the woman you love, the one you've chosen to marry, was pregnant right before you took her into your home. Joseph had a couple of really bad options here. He could either go public and shame Mary, or he could quietly divorce her. No good options, I'm sure, in his mind, and life can often be like that. Maybe you face things like this. Do I lie, or do I embarrass someone? Do I forego gifts or do I extend our debt? Do I sleep with him or do I lose him? Do I forgive her or do I look bad getting revenge? Do I risk addiction or do I endure terrible pain? Sometimes in life you think that you're caught between a rock and a hard place and there are no acceptable solutions and life only looks grim to you. Maybe that's true for you this week. At the time, Joseph probably thought that he had no good options. He has a terrible option and an awful option. He wasn't aware that that God could, that God would provide a better option, even a perfect option. Sometimes our situations in life are like that. Sometimes we are like that. Limited perspectives, limited options, and we think all is lost. We think this is nothing but a lose-lose situation. But for those who trust in God, we shouldn't think like that. Because believers factor in the possibility that God can act And especially in those times when we find no good answer, we ought to, we get to turn to God. Marriage would have been a signal for Joseph of his own guilt. And he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. So Joseph found, chose a quieter way. It was permitted by the law itself, legally, She could have been stoned even if it wasn't common in the day. But Joseph's choice here would leave his righteousness intact that was conformity to the law and his compassion intact, care for Mary. Joseph tried to solve this dilemma in the best way possible in his mind. It said something about his character and his commitment to the law and to Mary. But he still hadn't contemplated that there may be additional options from God. And that soon changes. Verse 20, God's design and salvation. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The, the, the narrative, the story moves into overdrive here because the angel appears. And, and we've kind of seen this movie before, haven't we? We've seen angels elsewhere in the Bible. We've seen angels on multiple occasions here in the middle of the Christmas story. But for Joseph, this was the first. This was shocking. These kind of appearances by angels threaten bladder control. This is terrifying. And so the first words of the angel are instructive to Joseph and they're timely. In essence, the angel says, Joseph, I know who you are, and I know what you're going through. The angel addresses him, not just by name, but he includes lineage. Look there. Joseph is a descendant of David, which actually matters for this coming Messiah. Maybe the angel wanted to confirm, Joseph, this isn't a normal problem situation. This is something really important. Secondly, the angel names Joseph's dilemma. The angel didn't say to Joseph something like this. You seem a little troubled today, Joseph. What's the issue? Tell me about it. Maybe I can assist you. See, the angel's not ignorant here, and neither is is God ignorant about what Joseph faces or what we face in life. And that matters. God knows the very things, friend, that you are facing right now. God knows the very things that you will face next year. God knows, and just like with Joseph, God cares. The angel declares here, what is conceived in her, in Mary, is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, Joseph, this is God's doing. God is up to something right in your midst. Let me ask you today, do you believe that's true of you as well? Whatever you're facing in the present, whatever you're going to face next year, that God could be doing something grand in your midst, even amidst your fear? We're dealt a lot of situations in life, we learn, that are beyond our control, beyond our choice. And God doesn't ask you and me what cards he can deal us God asks us to respond to him in ways that are godly, that show trust in him. So let me ask you do you believe that the dilemma that you're facing, or a dilemma you have faced, or dilemmas that you will face, are actually opportunities from God to do something amazing in your midst? The Bible tells us, don't, don't view dilemmas as crises, view dilemmas as opportunities for God to show off His plan and His power and His purpose. And that's what the angels saying to Joseph here. Joseph learns here that this baby, that Mary's pregnancy, had a divine origin, and that the offspring a divine identity. Joseph knew that he wasn't the father. Joseph learned that the father wasn't any other man. Rather, God, through the Holy Spirit, caused Mary's conception, which means that Mary is indeed a virgin. That that Mary has been obedient to God's design and obedient even to to Joseph's desires or expectations. Mary has not slept with a man, including her own fiancé, but God, in his providence, has overridden the natural processes in order to guarantee his plan. A plan not just for Mary or for Joseph, but a plan for all of humanity. And much as we think this is an oxymoron, the fact is we have Mary here, a pregnant virgin. Now, the virgin birth is important in Christian doctrine. So it begs the question, what exactly is the virgin birth? Why does it matter? It's important. Well, let's first address what a virgin birth is not. The virgin birth is not a myth of a bunch of puritanical prudes or religious people. The Bible, through the Gospels, attests to the virgin birth. Secondly, Mary was a virgin at the time of conception, and later we read, still a virgin at the time the baby was born but it's probably more theologically accurate and significant to call this the virgin conception as much as the virgin birth. Additionally, we should say that Mary did not remain a perpetual virgin despite uh, some of the accounts, errant as they are, of Roman Catholic teaching. We know this because Mary had other children, and, and that requires sexual intimacy. And the last verse here says that Joseph did not have sex with Mary until after the baby was born, which implies that later they did. This doesn't make sense if Mary and Joseph remain perpetually celibate. So, so Mary conceives a baby as a virgin. Why does this matter? So what? Well, it matters for a whole host of reasons. One, because it was prophesied this way. In some of your Bibles at the bottom, it says, note Isaiah 7.14, where a prophecy from hundreds of years before is fulfilled in this event. Matthew uses the very word parthenos, which means virgin in Greek, to make clear what he's referring to. And that God has supernatural capacities. Because if you believe in in a divine being, then you believe that the divine being can do supernatural things. If you say, like some do, that the virgin birth is impossible, you're just confessing that you don't believe in the God of the Bible. It doesn't mean we can explain it. Hey, this is difficult. It doesn't mean that we find it unremarkable. No, this is very remarkable. But it, believe, it means that we believe this is true that we believe in a God who can act beyond our senses. We believe in a God who, who can do beyond what is normal, who can do beyond what science can explain or replicate. But on a theological level, the virgin birth is essential because of what it signals. In Christian theology, we say that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Not half man and half God, you know, 50-50, but fully God, 100%, and fully man, 100% as well. That Jesus embodies everything that a human being ought to be, and that he reveals everything about the character of God's nature. So we speak of Jesus as one person with two natures. This matters because it's a stumbling block for many people. Rational skeptics and many people of other faiths. In fact, this doctrine of the incarnation, the becoming flesh of God, that the idea that Jesus is the God-man is a point of fundamental disagreement between Christians and Muslims and Jews and Jehovah Witnesses and countless others who do not hold to what the Bible says about Jesus. In the virgin birth, in the person of Jesus, we affirm Jesus' full humanity, it means that Jesus is fully able to identify with us. Jesus isn't unlike us, trying to do something for us. Jesus is representative of us. We have a Savior who can identify with our struggles. And in the very same breath that we affirm that, we say that Jesus is fully divine, that he's the Son of God, just as Jesus possesses the full range of human characteristics, so he possesses the full range of divine characteristics. But Jesus didn't inherit a sinful nature or the guilt that all of us who follow Adam have. David Platt writes, when you put these truths concerning Jesus' nature together, you begin to realize that the incarnation, the doctrine of Jesus' full humanity and full deity, is the most extraordinary miracle in all the Bible. And that if this miracle is true, then everything else in this gospel makes total sense. Matthew is saying, yes, Jesus is the legal son of Joseph. Yes, Jesus is the the biological son of Mary, but ultimately Jesus is the son of God. Jesus had to have one human parent or he couldn't have been human and a partaker of the flesh like us. But Jesus can identify with us because he's one of us. The book of Hebrews makes that clear. But Jesus also had to have divine parentage, or he could not have been a sinless, perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Then Jesus would have had the sinful nature and the sin that results from that. And Jesus, as a sinful person, would not have been an acceptable sacrifice to God. But Jesus was fully God and fully man and fully able to pay for our sin. See, this message of the gospel centered in Jesus comes first and foremost from a supernatural God. And yet God picks the the most humble ways, the most humble means in order to make this possible. Jesus had a pregnant fiance as his mother. Jesus had a manger as his bed. He had a backwater town as his place. He had a raging ruler Herod as his enemy. Talk about ridicule and shame for Jesus. And yet God chose this kind of entrance. He He chose this kind of existence in order to make himself known to the world. And it was steeped in shame. When Jesus took on flesh, he accepted the shame that would come with it. And so did his mother, and so did his father. But Jesus also came with a divine identity and with a divine mandate. And the angel makes that unmistakably clear. Look at verse 21. It was social tradition back then that the father would name the baby. But on this one, God says, no, no, I get to." You will name the child, the son, Jesus, which means God or Yahweh saves. Back in Jesus' day, the Jews were looking forward to the coming Messiah, and they thought that he would come and he would throw off the shackles of the Roman occupation. The tyranny that they lived with, that they hated, would, would finally be gone, and they would be liberated to live and serve as the people they were meant to be. But the problem then and the problem now is that so many of them didn't realize that the biggest problem in life wasn't external, it's internal. That they actually needed a change of heart. They needed a new heart more than they needed a change of scenery or a change of ruler. Same is true of people all across the world, including us. Far more than a bunch of new representatives in Congress or a new person in the White House to deliver us, we each and all need an internal fix. We need a new heart. We need to be transformed people. We need it simply for this reason, because our greatest threat is not the enemy out there, but it's the sin in here. That your heart and my heart manifest a sinful nature and it leaks out into all kinds of things that we do and say and think. That we are sinful by nature. Valuable, yes, but sinful. And there's no political ruler that's going to come and change that for us. But, the angel says, this baby will. He will come and save his people from their sins. That means that Jesus didn't primarily come as a cultural revolutionary. Jesus ultimately came as a spiritual savior. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, and those many include us. See, our sinful nature is the cause of sin and the cause of dysfunction all through our society. We need a savior. We need a savior for ourselves, and we need a savior from ourselves. The Bible makes that clear, but it also says that Jesus was offered to all of us. And it's a new reality that all of us, each of us, need to respond to. We need to look Jesus in the eye and say, you have what I need. What I can't do for myself, the dead end that I'm on, you can make a way. I can't reinvent myself. I can't evolve into a better version of myself. I need you to do a revolution in me. I need a new heart from you, Jesus. And that's precisely what he offers. A savior from our sins. But that's not the only description that the angel gives for Jesus. For if the name Jesus specifies what he does, that God saves The Messianic title, Emmanuel, specifies who he is, that God is with us. And that phrase, that word comes straight from Isaiah 7.14 as well. Jesus, this angel says, will be God in our midst. And that was shocking to the Jews. God had sent manna from heaven. Godhood had traveled in the cloud and in the fire. God had given the Ten Commandments to Moses. God had flooded the earth. God had created the universe. God had walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And this God will become flesh. He would dwell in our midst. As one paraphrase says, He would move into our neighborhood. He would reveal the character of God. All the fullness of the deity would dwell in bodily form in Jesus. That the glory, the transcendence of God would would be shown in the grace and the eminence of God. He would come to us. When God means to speak, God didn't send someone else. God comes himself to fetch us. One wise husband said, when I decided to ask my wife to marry me, I didn't send someone else to do it for me. I did it myself. Why? Well, because in matters of love, one must go himself. And that's a picture of the incarnation here. The the astounding truth of Christianity, Platt writes, the reality that God became flesh may be incomprehensible to many. But to those who believe, It is irresistible. Christmas, friends, shows you a God unlike the God of any other faith. As we follow the trajectory of the life of this baby, we discover that he's been lonely, that he's been misunderstood, that that he's been mocked, that he's been betrayed, that he's mourned death and he's faced death. And the kind of difficulties and hardships that you face at their core, he's faced too. Never again can you or I say, well, but you don't understand God. God, you haven't given me what I prayed for. God, you haven't delivered me from my pain, from my shame, from my loss. Because Jesus, God in the flesh, knows all of that. And yet he's come to give us eternal connection to build a bridge so that you and I can have relationship with the Father. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we can know the love of God. We might ask why God comes in the flesh. We might ask why God doesn't come with the kind of power that we want. Why, Tim Keller asked, would God come this time in the form of a baby, rather than a firestorm or a whirlwind? Well, because this time, he's not come to bring judgment, but to bear it to pay the penalty of our sins, to take away the barrier between humanity and God so that we can be together. Jesus is God with us. And for those who respond in the simplicity and the humility of repentance and faith, God no longer my empty way, my sinful heart, but a new heart from you. I trust you, Jesus alone. In the moment you are saved from your sin, and have life with God. Jesus is the permanent gift. It's quite a dream for Joseph. It's quite an unforgettable encounter. Joseph wakes up at some point. So what's he going to do with this new reality in his life? What's he going to do with this revelation from God? What would you do? What will you do with the revelation of God to you? What he's made clear in his word. We see something about Joseph's trust and obedience, verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. See, the pressing question for Joseph is simple, and it's defining. What what will he do with Mary? I can only imagine that Joseph thought to himself, God, it's great that you have all these cosmically significant plans for the world and that I'm a part of them. But what about my life? How am I supposed to face this issue right in front of me, God? Have you thought that? See, Joseph, if he marries her, then everybody in that society, a shame and honor context, they're going to know that this child wasn't born 40 weeks after they got married. They'll know that Mary was already pregnant. They'll know that that Joseph and Mary had had sex before marriage or or that she was unfaithful to him. They know that they're going to be shamed. They're going to be excluded. They're going to be rejected. Mary and Joseph know that they're going to be second-class citizens from here on out. So here's the message, Christmas message for Joseph. If Jesus Christ comes into your life... You're going to kiss your stellar reputation goodbye. It's quite appealing, isn't it? But maybe that's what we each need to grasp. Tim Keller insightfully writes that there are at least three kinds of courage that are required of all believers. First one, the courage to admit that you're a sinner. And if Jesus came to save his people from their sins, then maybe that includes me. The second is the courage to take up the world's disdain. That is, if we follow in Joseph's footsteps, we will face that too. But the third I find most insightful, and that is the courage to give up your right to self-determination, to lose control of your life. By refusing to let him, Joseph, name Jesus, the angel is saying, If Jesus is in your life, you are not his manager. The child who is about to be born is your manager. Keller describes, he says, Many people say to me, I'm interested in being a Christian, but not if a Christian means X or Y. You know what they're doing? They're trying to name him. They're saying, I want Jesus Christ, but on my terms. But the angel says that if Jesus comes into your life, you don't control him. He controls you. When when you come to Christ, you must drop your conditions. As soon as you say, I'll obey you, Jesus, if, now you're in control. That's not obedience at all. You're saying, Jesus, you're my advisor, but not my Lord. Jesus, I'm happy to take your recommendations. I'll consider them. I might even do some of them. But if you want Jesus with you, you have to give up the right to self-determination. You have to let someone else call the shots. Ravi Zacharias, in his book, Jesus Among Other Gods, tells the story. Perhaps you've heard it. Some years ago, I was visiting a place where beautiful saris are made, garment worn by Indian women, usually about six yards long. Wedding saris are a word, a work of art rich in gold and silver threads, full of color. The place I was visiting was known for making the best wedding saris in the world. So I expected to see some elaborate system of machines and designs that would boggle the mind, but not so. Each sari was being made individually by a father and son team. Father sat up on a platform two or three feet higher than the son, surrounded by thread and, and lots of color. And the son did just one thing. At the nod from his father, he would move the shuttle from one side to the other and back again. The father would gather some more thread in his fingers, nod again, and the son would move the shuttle again. And this would be repeated for hundreds of hours until you would see this magnificent pattern emerging. The son had just one easy task. Just move at the father's nod. All along, the father had the design in his mind that brought the right threads together. Zacharias writes, the more I reflect on my own life and the study of the lives of others, I'm fascinated to see the design God has for each one of us individually if we would only respond to him. See, Joseph had to learn to align his life to God's plans as God leads. That's the truth that every believer in Jesus has to learn to obey. It's humbling, it's huge, but it's liberating. As we learn in life with Jesus, that when He says jump, we say, How high? And in the course of time, we not only say, but we feel a joy in saying, Lord, how high? When we obey, we understand what it means to be standing in the center of God's will, and we will have a front row seat as we watch what God will do through us for his glory, just like Joseph. Friends, God cares more about our redemption than he cares about our reputation. And like Joseph, so should we. Let's pray. Only a God like you would come up with a story like this and a reality for us that puts a baby in a manger and sends him to a cross so that we could know the God who made us. What a crazy story, God. What a wonderful outcome. Thank you for sending Jesus to us, not only to be the Savior of our sins, but to be God in the flesh with us so that we could know and enjoy life with you. That is a phenomenal Christmas story. And I pray that our delight and our response would honor you, the author of that story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.